Oh, excellent. We haven't had the reading yet, have we? We had the reading from Exodus. So I know I knew we were doing the, the lineup, so I figured we hadn't done the reading first because that would have been spoilers. Excellent. Okay, so I'm going to read the whole of Exodus 20. Oh, no, no, not quite the whole of Exodus 20. I'm going to hold the whole of the Ten Commandments, which is most of Exodus 20. Um, and so if you want to boot up your Bibles and follow, please do. Um, uh, and um, we're, we are beginning this series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, just ten. It's based on some material J. John's put together, and I know some of the home churches will be tracking along with this as well, which is fantastic. Um, and uh, just to encourage you, that doesn't mean we're going to read the whole of Exodus 20 every single week, um, but we are going to read, uh, most weeks we will read the particular commandment we're talking about and some other verses that go along with it as well. Um, I did toy with the idea of us reading Exodus 20 every single week, so that would be, be actually a really interesting exercise, because it would be interesting for the first couple of weeks, and then everyone would get really, really sort of, oh my days, it's Exodus 20 again. Um, and then by the end, we might kind of be reveling in it. Um, but actually, some other verses want to take in along the way as well. But this week alone, we were going to read the, the majority of Exodus 20. Then the Lord gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even the children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in the six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. This is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart to be holy. Honour your father and mother, then you will live a long and full life in the land of the Lord your God is giving you. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely against your neighbour. You must not covet your neighbour's house, you must not covet your neighbour's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbour. This is the word of the Lord. Well done, Anglican. Brilliant. <laughs> so, um, David Baddiel always said that he really struggled with that last commandment because he claimed his neighbour had a really nice ox. Um, <laughs> one of the peculiarities of this series, uh, Exploring Just Ten, is that we're actually working backwards through the commandments. So we begin here with do not cover your neighbour's house, uh, possessions, whatever. Um, and we work our way backwards the peak point being commandment number five, honour thy your, your, your mother and father, uh, which will be in the same place whichever way we were going. Um, and then uh, we end with, you must not have any God but, uh, but me. 
Um, uh, which is a nice way of doing it. The reason J. John's put the material together that way, it takes us through the commandments and we celebrate together looking at the, uh, the, the power of who God is. Um, but that does mean we start here with the 10th commandment, um, uh, which is, as I just said there, uh, you must not covet your neighbour's house, uh, possessions, uh, wife, or anything that belongs to them. So, um, yes, I think that one of the reasons we want to do this series is because I think, the ten, as Kat said earlier, the Ten Commandments, they are the basis of most Western democracies' laws. They are enshrined in, uh, the majority of them are enshrined in law or have been at some point in the course of our history. And I say that goes for most, uh, most Judeo-Christian nations, um, or those with a heritage of that anyway. Um, but also I think that they have something really important to speak to our society today. Because as we become more and more a post-Christendom society, and more and more of the kind of the ancillary values of faith disappear from our society, uh, then we lose touch with some of these things. And the Ten Commandments are very much a way that help us to understand how to live in the glory of the resurrected Christ. Uh, because they help us understand the way God works. And some of them are really quite countercultural. I think we'd probably argue things like do not murder are fairly cultural as well. I hope that's still a stable that we hold on to. But general, but, but also, some of them, like the one today, is actually desperately countercultural. It calls us to live in a way that is different. And that's what we want to, uh, what I'm keen for us to explore, um, particularly today, as we look at this idea of not coveting um, the possessions of others. When I was a, uh, I guess about 13, 14, 15, I coveted seriously this machine here. <laughs> this is an Anstrad CPC Plus. You know it's the Plus because it's got a disk drive, not a tape drive. Okay. Oh my days. I, I, I coveted that machine. We weren't allowed a computer in my house in case I used it to play games. Um, and so um, I, found, I found this in the great universal catalogue um, that my mum had, and I tore the page out, and I desperately tried to save the, I think, probably a couple of hundred pounds it would have cost. Um, I never made it, but I really, really wanted that machine until my friend Richard got one of these. <laughs> Tari ST? Oh, my days. 512 megabytes, I think, of, 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 of disk space. But also 512K, 512K, um, just stunning. Um, I, it was this, it was, it was always, it was always, you know, there was always a great rival between Atari owners and Amiga owners. Um, and I'm really shallow. The Amiga, actually, if I'm honest, was a far better machine. But look at those function keys there. How cool is that? Just, oh, fantastic. I never achieved one of those either. But I knew in my heart of hearts that had I got either one of those computers, my life would have been fixed forever. <laughs> this was the ultimate thing. I just, you know, I would have been happy forever if I'd managed to get either the CPC or the Atari uh, ST. Um, except, of course, I wouldn't. Um, because we all know that actually we so often get, um, we so often strive for things that give us a momentary buzz, 
but actually they um, they ultimately fail. They don't they don't satisfy us because it's part of the human condition that we see stuff around us and we're really keen on getting it. We like to accumulate things. I don't know what it is in us, but it seems to be something that's fairly universal in the human condition. It's not just cultural, but in Western culture, um, uh, um, uh, 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 capitalist culture, it is particularly prevalent. Um, and uh, the, the problem is that we constantly strive for things and then we get them and they satisfy for a while and then we find ourselves striving for the next thing. I mean, I love my tech. Yeah, it's a bit of me that would still go and get one of those if I could. Um, <laughs> I love my tech. The danger of that is that technology moves so fast that you're constantly thinking, oh, great, I've got OnePlus 6. It's a fantastic phone. I love this phone. It's phenomenal. But the OnePlus 6T came out about a month after I got this. Oh, my days. It's exactly the same phone, except the OnePlus T has a sensor under the screen for your fingerprint instead of on the back. It would be so easy, so easy to get, and it is easy for us to get into that constant cycle of, oh, I must have the next thing, I must have it. And of course the advertisers know this. They know that they are feeding into something really base in our personalities when they advertise to us. And day in, day out, we are bombarded with commercials. Not just on TV and radio, but every web page you visit. Even the news has adverts masquerading as actual news items. When the BBC is reporting the latest iPhone launch, that is not a news item. It's not, it's an advert. Now, I wouldn't dream of suggesting the BBC is getting paid for doing that. Wouldn't dream of suggesting such a thing. But the reality is, is it's not news. A hundred Christians murdered on Easter Day is news. The iPhone release is not. And so we, we, are, we are caught in a cycle of always getting the next thing. And... Um, you know, the, the, the web makes it even easier for advertisers because content-based advertising is brilliant for them because you look at something and the next thing you know, it's everywhere you go. It's on the news website, it's on the website, where it's on Facebook. Ever, gosh, I was just thinking I really, really wanted a new bin and now there are new bins everywhere. <laughs> I, I've been looking at bins recently, don't ask. Um, the message, though, is always the same. It's sometimes subtle and it's sometimes blatant, but it's always the same. This item, this product, this service, this thing that we've got to sell you, this thing will change your life. It will make everything better. It will improve the way you live. You want it, you must have it. It is the best thing ever. Oh my days, have you still got one of those? It's rubbish. This is the next version. But the fact is, they advertise the... Um, they advertise the knowing that we have this inbuilt desire to accumulate things. And that, of course, is where this commandment comes in. Exodus 20, 17, do not covet your neighbour's house or anything else your neighbour owns. The word covet means to desire with an intent to own something, usually something that can't rightfully be yours. You're seeing it in someone, you're seeing something else that someone's got. The implication in, the, in, in Exodus is that by coveting it, you may then take it. You may take your neighbour's oxen, and that is stealing, which is, of course, one of the 
uh, the commandments is against that. But it comes into play here because, of course, we live in a world that's very different and we have so much more stuff that it's not just that you see that your neighbour's got something, you'll then strive in all you can in order to achieve it, to mimic it. Did I want the Atari ST because it was a fantastic machine? Well, a bit, yes. It was phenomenal. Um, but, actually, a lot of me wanted it because Richard had one. And he was my closest friend, and so I wanted what he had. It was, uh, it was, it was, it was, it was you know, more than just one thing, but it was, it was that, that desire came from lots of different places. These days we would call coveting probably what we would probably refer to as materialism or consumerism. And the problem is an attitude that's constantly, constantly desiring something that, that is difficult to attain or is going to cost us to attain or is going to put us in debt to attain um, won't give us contentment. And it can cause lots of other problems in our lives. Jesus said, uh, beware, don't be greedy for what you don't have. Real life is not measured by how much we own, Luke 12, 15. When we start focusing on all the things we don't have, we lose sight of God, and we lose sight of the things that are important in our lives. We lose sight of the importance of our family, our friends. We lose sight of the, of the importance of living the mission God calls us to. Materialism can draws us off the path we're called to live. It just does, because it... It, 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 it ties in with that, do not have any God other than the Lord your God. We start to put things above God in our life because having these things will make our lives better and we get fixated on them. And that causes despair. It also causes things like debt because suddenly you'll strive to get, any, you'll strive to get something even if you can't afford it. Um, it's a slight aside, but there's some wise words from the folk at Saturday Night Live on buying things that you can't afford. Oh, I just can't get these numbers to add up. Like we're never going to get out of this hole. Credit card debt, does it ever end? Maybe I can help. We sure could use it. We've tried debt consolidation companies. We've even taken out loans to help make payments. Well, you're not the only ones. Did you know millions of Americans live with debt they cannot control? That's why I developed this unique new program for managing your debt. It's called Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. Now, let me see that. If you don't have any money, you should not buy anything. Sounds interesting. Sounds confusing. I don't know, honey. This makes a lot of sense. There's a whole section here on how to buy expensive things using money you save. Give me that. And where would you get this saved money? I'll tell you where and how in chapter three. Okay, but what if I want something but I don't have any money? You don't buy it. Well, let's say I don't have enough money to buy something. Should I buy it anyway? No. <laughs> now I'm really confused. It's a little confusing at first. the book. 
It's only one page long. <laughs> the advice is priceless, and the book is free. Wow, I like the sound of that. Yeah, we can put it on our credit card. <laughs> so get out of debt now. Write for your free copy of Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. And if you order now, you also receive Seriously. If you don't have the money, don't buy it. Along with a 12 month subscription to Stop Buying Stuff magazine. So order today. It's funny because it's entirely countercultural to the way we are duped into living. It says, actually, we should wait, we should work for it. Some people I know have just set up home together and they've done, uh, they, they, they've had the house for about eight months and they've worked and made it as good as they can. They've tried to perfect the house, they've had all the work done and now they've moved in. And the house is perfect because that's what their culture, that's what society they've grown up in has told them what needs, that's how it should be. You won't be happy unless your house is perfect. And do you know what? Love them to bits, but I'm really, really sad for them because they've missed out on that sitting around on orange boxes phase of their relationship. They've missed out on that bit where you have to struggle and strive to get stuff, not because you want it, but because actually it's a genuine need. You haven't got a cooker and you need a cooker. They've missed out on that because society has sold them a lie. You will be happy if your home is perfect. You will be happy if you've got the latest gadget. You will be happy if, 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 because it's endless and it's relentless. The question is, and the question this commandment throws to us, is, is it our call as the people of God to step off this treadmill of consumerism? And I don't think I mean we must all suddenly live like monks. We live in a society that requires us to have certain things. We live, in a, we live in a world that makes it very difficult if we don't have access to transport. We live in a world where we have to somehow provide a home for our families. So I'm not suggesting that we are all called to the monastic lifestyle. Some people are. But are we called to step off this treadmill of consumerism? 1 Timothy says, true religion with, with contentment is great wealth. After all, we didn't bring anything with us when we came into the world, and we certainly cannot carry anything away with us when we die. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. And I think that's what this passage is calling us to, is to find contentment. And I don't mean that in a kind of very individualistic, oh, I'm happy kind of way but to find satisfaction in God and in God alone. How do we do that? Because it's a call that might suggest that we have to wholly trust God. And we sing it with our lips and we say it, and I think on a Sunday morning we mean it, but the weariness of the week gets us down and it's easy to forget that actually that's our call to live wholly satisfied to God, giving everything up to him. We touched on this when we were talking about giving. The Vikings holding their swords above their head want to give everything to God except their sword arm. That doesn't make sense. Go back through the, the, the sermons, you'll catch, you'll catch up. Or it's in your notebook because you're all making notes about the sermon. Ah. So how do we do it? How do we find satisfaction in God and in God alone? 
there's some suggestions here. Um, they no, may not be exclusive, but there's some suggestions. And I think the first is finding gratitude. Finding gratitude for the things that we do have. Each and every one of us here in this room today, every single one of us, no matter what our financial position says, no matter how difficult our lives are right now, and I know some of us are really struggling with money, some of us are really struggling with relationships, some of us are really struggling with all sorts of things, all the things that can affect us as human beings. Some of us, there will be somebody who's struggling with each and every one of them today. But if you're in this room today, you are in one of the, um, uh, you are richer than 75% of the rest of the world just by the fact that you live in the Southampton area in southern Britain in 2019. You are richer than three quarters of the world because you've got a, head, you've got a roof over your head. You've probably got the food in your refrigerator. Everyone here seems to be wearing clothes. You've got a place to sleep. And so you're richer than 75% of the world. If you've also got money in your bank that is more than the money of your debt, I think probably we can exclude mortgages. If you've got a pot somewhere in your house for spare change, we have a, an old coffee tin called the penny can where we put our coppers. You're among the top 8% of the world's wealthy just by virtue of who you are and where you were born. It's quite hard to see, I'm sorry, I didn't realise it would blur. Um, if you can see the colours at least, um, I've forgotten what they were. Um, if you see that blue block, um, the world's richest 20% consume 76.6 of the world's resources. And if you can see the red slice of the pie chart, the world's middle 60% consume 21.9% of the world's um, resources. And probably if your eyes are bad, you can't even see the green sliver between the blue and the red. The world's poorest people consume, the poorest 20% consume 1.5% of the world's resources. We live in an inequitable, unjust world. Now, there are many, many other things we can take from that, and there may be a sermon for another time. But what it says is, is that actually, we can start at a place of gratitude. If we start at a place of gratitude, thanking God for this great provision that he has given us, then maybe, maybe we can start to change this. It's not actually the point of today's, uh, what we're talking about today. But when we have a point where we start at a point of gratitude, we may start to recognise the injustice and the inequality in the world, and then, and then we can be released into, into bringing change. So let us find gratitude in the great things that God has given us. And then let us recognise the value of wealth. Ecclesiastes 5, uh, verse 10 says, Those who love money will never have enough. How absurd to think that wealth brings true happiness. Off the top of my head, I can't tell you when Ecclesiastes was written, but it was probably about, uh, probably about a thousand years BC, given when we were talking about when and how old Exodus is. So 3,000 or more years ago, this wisdom was put to the page. And yet, we are still duped today with all our rationality, with all the wisdom, with all the way we think we're so much more, we're so much cleverer than previous generations we still get duped to not recognise this. 
that actually we think that having more things, having more money, having more savings will make our lives better. Things satisfy for a while, but they will never satisfy us wholly. Possessions will never give us a permanent happiness, and they do not give us permanent security. So we need to recognise the value of the things that we have, the value of the wealth that we enjoy. And again, I know this doesn't necessarily make every, uh, those that are struggling in particular areas, it doesn't necessarily make it better right now. But starting to recognise the wealth and have the gratitude for it helps us to start to move towards that contentment in God. Again, this is not some vague idea of happiness, but contentment in God. The other thing is to recognise people over possessions. When we start to covet so much that we are desperate to have enough money to, do, to get the next car or the newest phone or the next promotion, when we start to have that attitude, when we lose sight of, um, of, of contentment in God, we get to that point where we no longer take any prisoners in our attempt to achieve the unattainable. So... We st our actions start to impact other people. That's how you end up with a graph like that that shows us that actually in this part of the world we have far more than the majority of the rest of the world. Because we, you start when, 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 when you have a culture that is wholeheartedly out for more stuff, better promotion, more job, we lose sight of our fellow human beings. We lose sight of the injustice that we're causing lose sight of the fact that every time a company makes a change of where something's manufactured in order to improve the profits for their shareholders, somebody else is enslaved, somebody else is oppressed. And maturity is knowing that we have enough, that we don't need the new thing. And that leads us to being generous. Because on the journey towards contentment is God, is the generosity that is the heart of the gospel. God gave his son so that we could be restored into relationship with him. And generosity is a marker of the church. And it's also the thing that is missing from our society. Generosity is, it is out there. There are people, believers and non-believers, who are incredibly generous with their time, with their money, with their things, with their whole lives. But it's very rare. In fact, the one place where it's less rare is the Church of Christ, because it is at the heart of the gospel we're called to serve. Generosity is a marker of the church, but it's missing in almost every other part of our society. People are not generous. And I'm not just talking about financial generosity. People are not generous with their time or their attitudes. I couldn't, I was, I, I couldn't, I had to go up to um, somewhere yesterday and I couldn't park. And I couldn't park because someone had parked their very expensive German car long ways across two spaces and the rest of the car park was busy. Because clearly what they were doing was far more important than anyone else. And I don't mean that bitterly, but that's a lack of generosity. That, that's where it's missing. It's missing in all walks of our society. 
C.S. Lewis said, I'm afraid that biblical charity is more than merely giving away that which we can't afford to do without anyway. Um, some years ago, when we were in our previous parish, um, we were moved, as St. Tom's was at the time, uh, the plight of the refugees in Calais. Um, and uh, along with some of, the, uh, some of the local churches, we, um, we, we, we made an open appeal to people in the village to, um, to, to bring anything that they could offer that might, might help. Clothes, accommodation, tents, you know, the sort of thing. And we got incredible, generous gifts from lots and lots of people. We also got a lot of what C.S. Lewis is talking about here, people giving away stuff um, because it, they, they could easily do without it. The thing is, the trouble, the trouble was, was the refugees could probably have done without it as well. I think the low point as we sorted through the stuff was the salad spinner. Because when you're a refugee who has nothing and hasn't had a house, doesn't have a roof over their heads or clothes to wear, what you really need is to be able to spin your lettuce so it's not wet while you eat it. And now I used to go straight into judgment because it was given presumably with a good heart. But actually we got a lot of stuff that was just easier to give to us than it was to take to the tip. Generosity is not giving the stuff you don't need to give away. Generosity is giving the stuff you can't afford to give away. And generosity is the marker of the Church of Christ. Jesus talked a great deal about giving. Why? Because giving is an antidote to materialism and consumerism. It's an antidote to coveting. When we are generous, when we give, it changes our heart, it changes the heart of those around us, and it changes the world. And finally, as we seek contentment in God, there's the... So it, it's recognising that our security is in Jesus, not in things. God made us for a purpose, and in Jesus, we find that purpose. And that's the exact opposite of what our society says. It often says that our personal value is based on our financial value. That, and we have this idea that if we own a lot, we must be worth a lot. The cult of celebrity is all about people that have achieved, well, nothing really. They've got a lot of money. They've got a lot of things. And that's the stuff the world celebrates, but that's not how it should be in the Church of Christ. See, the Church of Christ sits there in the exact opposite of what our society says. Our value is not based on the jobs we've got. Our value is not based on the amount of money we've accrued. Our value is not based on the, big, the house we've got or the car we drive. It's based on God's love for us and his sacrifice for us through Christ. So our response, our response is, to, is or should be to make God's will the priority in our life. And when we focus on that, everything else will fall into place. And that doesn't mean it will make things easy or it'll be an easy journey. But as we try more and more to trust in him each day, to make him the centre of all we, how we live, then that will change our lives and our attitudes. We are called as the Church of Christ to live differently. We just are. The Christian life is a call to live differently. It's to find contentment in him and him alone. Because God made us for a purpose. And in Jesus we find that purpose. Shall we pray?
Father God, as we revisit these ancient words, as we are challenged by the wisdom that you gave to your people thousands of years ago, Lord, help us to live differently for you. Help us to find our contentment in you, in all that you've done for us. And help us to live lives that reflect that. In Jesus' name, amen.